Thank you, everyone, who participated up to this point. We have some talented singers in our church, don't we? Amen. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I think it was last night, was it, was it you or was it Valera? Last night we were singing downstairs uh, some, some songs and uh, all of a sudden someone started like belting it out like they were singing a solo. Everybody turned around. It was Valera or you. I'm going to blame both of you, okay? Uh, that's okay. If you're in church and uh, you feel like singing and you just go beyond us, just do your thing, okay? Uh, thank you so much. Did you see that uh, Kevin Brooks Jr.? He, he, he's almost there. He just barely went like this. He barely put it down, but he's, he's almost at my level right here. So he's growing very quickly. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming to church this morning. You could have been anywhere else at another church, or you could have been at home, but you've chosen to be here and worshiping the Lord. And I believe that you will receive a blessing for that reason alone, because you've come to experience God in this place through worship, through the Word, and through the experience of other believers here. Today we are going to be talking about the worst man in the Bible. We're going to be talking about what? The worst, the worst man in the Bible. And in order to talk about the worst man in the Bible, you need a, a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and reach in front of you. We have pew Bibles there. Uh, if you can't find a pew Bible, find another person and just get as close as possible to them that you could read their Bible, okay? Wonderful, wonderful. A couple of uh, months ago, uh, me and my wife uh, celebrated our anniversary. I think it was our sixth anniversary. And you know, when you're young and you have kids, you don't really celebrate anniversaries. You celebrate family verses, right? So we decided to go to Noah's Ark and enjoy that great spectacle of Noah's Ark down in Kentucky. The year before that, we took another anniversary trip, and we went to Chicago, and we got to see the aquarium there and did other things like eat uh, the thick pizzas they have down there. But it didn't compare to what my parents did when they turned 25 years of marriage. Anybody is 25 or more here? 25 or more years of marriage? Are you sure you guys are too young? Are you sure it's 25? When they turned 25, my parents announced that they were going to they were going to take an anniversary trip all the way to Italy. Oh, I was a little bit jealous. All the way to Italy, and they've planned this great trip to Italy to see all the beautiful monuments, to eat all the delicious food over there, and to just enjoy this place. They even went to Rome, which was very interesting to me. Uh, but they got to see all the beauties of Italy, and they would send me these pictures of their beautiful places that they were, you know, visiting and experiencing, and one of the pictures that they sent me was an ark, an ark in, in Rome that is quite interesting. It's actually called the Ark of Titus. Have you heard of that ark before? How many of you have heard of that ark before? This ark is very old. It comes from the first century A.D., and uh, it's so famous that even the Ark of Triumph in France was modeled after this great ark. And it was constructed in the year 82 by the Emperor Domitian after the death of his older brother Titus. So he wanted to kind of honor his brother who had just died. He was the emperor, so he could do whatever he wanted. He said, let's build this huge ark in the center of Rome. And he dedicated it to his brother Titus, who had just died. And he dedicated it specifically to all the great things that his brother had done. Now, one of the greatest things, according to the Romans, that Titus had done was to conquer and destroy a city called Jerusalem. You see, it was General Titus, before he became emperor, who had gone down to Israel when that Jewish nation was rebelling, had besieged it, and finally destroyed it. In fact, for thousands of years, the Jewish leaders in Rome had put a curse and a ban that no Jewish man, woman, or child could ever walk through that ark or underneath that ark. 
Because if a Jew was walking through that ark, all he or she had to do was look to the side, to the right, and there in big picture in the rock was cut in the picture of Romans carrying away the artifacts of the holy temple. If you walked under that ark, into the marble, into the stone, you would see the holy menorah, you know, the candlestick being carried away by Romans. You would see the articles of the holy place being carried away. And so the Jews said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not walking through that ark. No way. That is a bad, bad memory. And it was a terrible event, I tell you. There is a historian, a Jewish historian that lived during that time called Josephus. And Josephus was the general of the Galilean army. And he did a wonderful job defending Galilee, but finally the Romans overtook him. And they imprisoned him and they gave him a choice. They said, you could die or you could work with us to try to convince the Jews in Jerusalem, who were about 1.5 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem, he said, convince them to surrender. But do you think the Jews surrendered? No, they didn't. For many reasons. For many reasons. One was false prophets. They were saying, God's about to deliver you. God's about to deliver you. But no Christian perished there because Jesus had told the Christians before that when they see the armies of Rome approaching to flee to the mountains, and so the Jewish leaders there were convincing the people to hold out. The famine got so bad that they were eating their children. The famine got so bad that they were eating their belts. The famine got so bad that people were stealing and killing from each other. It was a terrible situation, but they would not give in. And instead of dying in the city, the men would do kamikaze runs at the Romans and try to kill them before they died of hunger. Finally, that city gave in, the walls broke, And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, ran in, and they were so angry at these people who had had not given up that they decided to destroy everything, including the temple. Do you know what Titus decided to do to these people, these rebellious people? He did not leave one stone upon another of the walls of Jerusalem. They burned down the temple, and the 70,000 Jews that survived... They took them to all the nations of the Roman Empire. They spread them out. And you know what they did with the country of Israel? They brought them people from all sorts of countries and they said, live here so the Jews could never come back here. And it was like that for many years until the nation of Israel was formed in the 1900s. But even though you go to Israel today, you will discover that the majority of citizens in the nation of Israel are not Jews. Actually, there are people from every other country. There are very few Jews there. Because Jews, there's more Jews in New York than there is in the nation of Israel. Because just like the Roman Emperor Titus did, or the general at that time, he spread them all over the world, and they are still all over the world. But you know, this was a prophecy that God had given in the Old Testament What would happen to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel? And I want you to go to our memory verse that we started today, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 4. Because the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 15, verse 4, that there was a reason that the Jews were spread out through all the nations. They were cast out of their nation of Israel. And the reason is the worst man in the The worst man in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 4 in the King James says this. I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the So just like it happened, right? I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth because of who? Because Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in... Jerusalem. Friends, today we want to dive into the story of the worst man in the Bible, Manasseh. The reason that the Jews are spread out throughout the world, this prophecy began because of the deeds of Manasseh and what he led the nation of Israel to finally become. 
But in a sense, today's sermon is not just about the worst man in the Bible. It really is about God and His mercy. You know, mercy sometimes is hard to experience, even hard to accept. I remember the story of a commissioner of a prison that one day was so proud of his prisoners that he went to the governor of the state and he said, please, would you give five men in my jail a pardon? The best behaved men in my jail, would you please give them a pardon? And the governor was so happy that the men were behaving well in prison that he wrote out five pardons for the best behaved men in that prison. Six months passed because they wanted to make sure that, that nothing had changed and, and that this was a secret pardon so no one knew about it. And finally one day they lined up 1,100 men in front of the governor and the commissioner of the jail and they announced to the men, today we are pardoning five men. You should have seen the commotion in that crowd. Everybody looked at each other. Could it be me? Could it be you? There were men there for life. There were men there for 50 years. And the pardon was going to happen for five men. For five men. Well, the idea of the governor was that he was going to explain to all the men why he was giving that pardon. But the commissioner said, these men will die of anxiety. Just tell them who was being pardoned and tell them why after. And so they began with the first name, Reuben Johnson. Is there Reuben Johnson? Come get your pardon. No one moved. Reuben Johnson, come forward. You're pardoned. No one moved. The commissioner knew who Reuben Johnson was. And he looked at him and said, Reuben Johnson, come. Reuben Johnson looked behind him. Reuben, you. Again, he looked at who they could be talking about. Finally, the commissioner went up to him and said, I'm talking about you. Come forward. Reuben Johnson could not believe. It must be another Reuben Johnson could not believe that he was being what? That he was being pardoned. Sometimes it's hard to fathom God's mercy and pardon for us, isn't it? Sometimes it's even hard to think, how can God punish, uh, how can God pardon a man or a woman like me? And sometimes we are so overwhelmed by His mercy, by His kindness, that we don't even know what to do, how to react like Reuben Johnson. But today's sermon is not about God's mercy to you. Today, I am putting forth the argument that if you have experienced God's mercy, God's forgiveness. Today I want to show you that God's mercy and forgiveness is even deeper and greater than you could imagine. If God has forgiven you, if God has shown you mercy, I promise that after today you will see that that was just scratching the surface because God's love, God's mercy, and God's forgiveness is greater than you could even know. It reminds me of the story of two ambassadors getting together back in the heydays of the colonial empires, the empire of Spain and the empire of France. And the, and the ambassador of France told his good friend, the ambassador of Spain, come, come, I want to show you all the riches that the king of France has. And he took him to a castle and there were golden rings and there was jewels and there was gold. There was all sorts of things that we can't even imagine, beauties. But the ambassador of Spain was unimpressed. He said, your king has a nice little collection of treasures, but my king owns the pits of gold in Peru and Brazil and all these other places in that time when the Spanish Empire was great. He says, they have no bottom. Though you might have a nice treasure, I own, my king owns everything in the ground that is of gold. 
Corinthians. We've been kind of playing with God's treasure of grace. But today we want to go a little bit deeper and show you that God has even more than we can imagine. He owns greater treasures of mercy and grace. And in order to understand that, we need to go to the, to the worst man in the Bible. The worst man in the Bible, which we find in the book of 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. And we begin with one verse before 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. Um, we begin with 1 Kings chapter 20, I'm sorry, and verse 21. 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 21, which is the last verse in that chapter. I mean, 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 21. 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 21. Are you there? 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 21. This is what it says there. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his what? In his place. It is very difficult to imagine a more dramatic reversal than when Manasseh assumed the throne of Judah in place of his father. Hezekiah was the best king Judah had ever had. Then his son Manasseh must have been the worst king it ever had. Hezekiah received the distinction of being compared to King David. Manasseh was the only king in Judah who was likened to the wicked king of Ahab of Israel. There was a dramatic difference between father and son. Now, this is not the sermon. This is not the point. But I would be amiss if I didn't mention that spirituality is not genetic. That conversion is not automatically passed down from father to son or mother to son or parents to children. And I've seen many good parents whose children have gone very far from what they have been taught. But I do tell you this, and I give warning to the young people here. God will judge those children, youth, and adults who have been raised in a Christian home much different than those who have been raised outside in the world. God holds you, me, to a greater standard if you've had righteous and good parents who have taught you the things of the Lord. And so King Hezekiah was a king that followed the Lord, and his son had no excuse. His son had no excuse to behave and act the way he did. But the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 21, in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time. And his mother's name was Hepzibah. And listen to what verse 2 says. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. The Lord had given these nations a lot of time to turn from their wicked practices. But finally, justice had to be served, and he brought the nation of Israel there. And don't get mistaken, don't get it mistaken, a lot of times people tell you the Old Testament God is a God of murder and murdering children and committing genocide. You need to read the Bible more carefully because the Lord didn't command the nation of Israel to kill all those people, but to drive them out and it was the ones who would not be driven out that had to be destroyed so even judgment was on their their terms so all the sins that polluted the land caused God to bring judgment to cast these nations out and he brought his people but now through Manasseh things are going to get as bad or even worse than before when those nations existed there. So what exactly did Manasseh do that was so terrible? Let's go to verse number 3 of 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 3. It says there, 
For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and he made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. Now there's a lot of code words there, but one of the code words that the Bible uses is that he built up the high places. Now the high places are not just places of idol worship, of false god worship, but the high places are known as places of sacrifice. Specifically, sacrifices of blood, and even more, sacrifices of human blood. Have you ever been to a high place before? Have you ever seen a high place of worship before? I've seen a high place of worship when I took a trip down to my father's country in Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu are, is a city located in the mountainous regions of Peru all the way up there. It's very high. And when you get up there, you see this beautiful architect in the middle of the mountain nowhere. And it's this beautiful city that was constructed perfectly and precisely by that, uh, by that people during that time. And when you get there, you realize that a lot of people live there. And then you ask the, the people who work there, who lived here? It wasn't the commoners. It was the priest. And what were they doing up here in this high place? Then they take you to the highest place in the town. And you find that there's a rock there that you could lay on, but the rock is different than all the other rocks there. It is smooth, very smooth. And you are told that the reason it's smooth is because so much human blood has flowed on that jagged rock that now it became smooth. Why did they build those high places to offer sacrifices to a God that they believed was in heaven? The closer they were to him, the closer they were to accepting their sacrifice. If you go to Mexico, to the great Aztec empires, well, they didn't have many big mountains in Mexico City area. If you go to Mexico City, you fly into a plane and you find that the city is flat. There's not a lot of mountains there. So what do you do when you don't have high places? You build high places. And they have these huge pyramids. And at the top of those pyramids is where they offer their human sacrifices. They've found pits of the Aztec Empire filled with bones of children, adults, and women. So when the Bible says that Manasseh built these high places, don't fool yourself. It was wicked. It was evil. And it was bad. But the Bible tells us also that he brought back the worship of a God. What God was that? What God was that? The God of Baal. Now, Baal wasn't like every other God. This God almost replaced the worship of Jehovah in Israel. Other gods was like, okay, I worship Jehovah, but I'm going to stray off and, 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 you know, go to the house of this other God. But then, you know, don't tell anybody. I'm going to come back to church. But Baal almost replaced Jehovah. In fact, Baal, for a time, was the official religion of Israel under which king and queen? Ahab and, and Jezebel. Do you remember that they killed all the prophets and priests of Jehovah? And they brought in all the priests of Baal. And it became the religion of Israel at that time. And it was almost to the point that they were going to forget about God. In fact, if they would have succeeded, Jews today would be known for their worship of Baal. But God intervened miraculously with the prophet Elijah when he brought all the the, all the Israelite people together upon the mountain and he asked God to answer his prayer of raining fire down from heaven after the priests of Baal had spent all day cutting themselves screaming 
And no fire had come down on their sacrifice. And when the fire came down, the people believed that there was one true God. And they killed the prophets and priests of Baal. And the tide turned and the people worshipped Jehovah again. But now, 150 years later, here comes Manasseh and he's reintroducing the worship of Baal that his grandfather had tried to bring. Human sacrifice, Baal worship, and worshiping the celestial gods. Manasseh was up to no good. Verse 4 continues, and it says, He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my, my name. He also brought false worship into the house of the Lord. How would you feel? Friends, if you came to church this Saturday and all of a sudden there was an altar here, there was an altar there, and there was an idol of a different God and people were offering animal sacrifices or other sacrifices, how would you feel? Would that make you feel comfortable? Would you be a little angry? Would you be upset? What would you say? Well, the Bible tells us that he introduced these into the house of the Lord because he wanted to introduce poly theism into Israel's uh, worship. Verse 5 tells us, and he built altars for all the house of the Lord. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse uh, 1 through 16, and uh, you'll find there a description of exactly what that meant when he brought altars into the house of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 1, the probably prophet Ezekiel is given a vision of the, of, from God as to what is happening in his temple. Ezekiel chapter 8, and let's begin with verse 2. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 2. We're on page 807 in your pew Bibles. 807 in your pew Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 2. Listen to what the poor prophet Ezekiel saw. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of what? Fire. From the appearance of his waist downward, fire. And from his waist upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair. I'm not sure what that means. He lifted him up by his hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gates of the inner court of the temple where the seat of the image of jealousy was which provokes to jealousy. That means there was an idol there. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision I saw in the plain. Verse 5, then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north. And what did he see in the north gates? There was also an image of jealousy in the entrance. There was an idol there. Verse 6, furthermore he said, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that are the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again you will see greater abominations. Verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. So he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. So he's talking about the church. He's talking about the temple. And when he's shown what's going on in the temple, he goes into this room where they're worshiping, supposedly in secret, in the temple, and he sees every animal you could imagine. And not a real animal, an idol of an animal. And there's people worshiping them. I remember when I was in Guam, I went to visit a, a Hindu uh, temple. And when I went in there, they assumed I was Catholic because, you know, it's a Catholic island, majorly. In the front was a, was a goddess, a Hindu goddess carrying a little baby. And they said, look, just like Mary. And when I went inside, there was all sorts of animals and, and beasts and all sorts of idols there. And they literally told me, pick whichever one you like and offer a sacrifice. 
That's what was happening in the church. What would you do to Pastor Silva if you show up on Saturday and I got all sorts of idols here and say, hey, you know, God's good, but, you know, you could choose another one too if you want today. That's what Ezekiel was seeing in vision. That's what Manasseh had introduced. And the Bible tells us in verse number 11, And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. In their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shapham. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. They were praying to these. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Verse 13, he, turn again, you will see greater abomination that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the house, the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. This is another form of worship for this God. But what really gets me is the next one, verse 15 and 16. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. Verse 16, so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, between the what? The porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple, and they were facing the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the, the east. They had turned their back on God, and they were worshiping the, the sun. This is what was introduced to Israel by Manasseh. Are you starting to get a picture of Manasseh? Are you trying to see how terrible this man is? Go to 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6. We're going to continue the story of Manasseh, the things that he did in the nation of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 6. We're picking right back off where we left. And the Bible tells us there in verse 6. Of chapter 21 of 2 Kings, talking about Manasseh. Also, he made his son pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying and used witchcraft. He consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So, two things he did there. The Bible tells us that he spoke to mediums and spirits and used witchcraft translated into modern language today. What was Manasseh doing? He was getting counsel from Satan. He was getting counsel from, from Satan. And then it says that he made his son to pass through the, through the fire. Now, some people believe that that just means that he dedicated his son. To a God. But I believe that it was what it says that he made his son pass through the fire. I believe he sacrificed one of his sons to a God. You know, the gods, the way they used to sacrifice their children, and the reason I'm sharing details is not because I want to. You know, the children are in children's church, so we could share a little bit more. But I want you to get an idea how bad this man was. There's a purpose to it. It's not just because I enjoy sharing these details. The way they used to sacrifice the children in the fire was that they would create this cast iron god with a hole in the back where they put wood and they would light that wood on fire. So the whole, the whole iron cast idol or statue would become searing hot. And the idol would have a hand like that where you would place your son or daughter, your little child there. And... It was so hot that it would like melt their skin and they would die there. But the shock was so great when you put a child there that the baby didn't even scream or cry. They would just kind of do this with their teeth. You know, when you're really straining, you go like that. And the priest would tell the mothers and father, look, they're smiling. They are accepted by that God. As their children would, would burn to death. That's what Manasseh did to his own son. And he encouraged by his example to every other parent to do the, to do the same. To do the same. What a terrible, terrible man. Verse number 7. 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 7 says this. He even set a carved image of Asherah 
that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. The Bible tells us that he brought an altar to the God of Asherah in the church. If you study who that God is, Asherah, it's the goddess of fertility. The goddess of what? Fertility. Do you know how you offer a sacrifice to the goddess of fertility? It's a sexual act. And so when you brought an altar, when you built an altar to this goddess of fertility, you also had to have prostitutes there. Because instead of offering money or food or animals or your own children to bring honor to this God, you would perform a sexual act with a prostitute in front of the idol. And this was happening in the temple. How do you feel about Manasseh? What, what would you do to him if he was under your judgment? Hmm? Maybe off with his head, right? Terrible, terrible man. The worst man in the Bible. Verse 9 tells us this. God tried to reach out to him and to the nation. Verse 9, but they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. He led Israel to be even more wicked than the nations that were cast out before them. And verse 10 says, and the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than the Amorites who were, who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. You know, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to save him. And listen to what he did to those prophets in verse 16. It says in verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sins by which he had made Judah sin and do an evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you know which famous prophet was killed by Manasseh? It was the same prophet that came to his father and told his father that he was about to die. And his father cried and prayed to the Lord to give him more life. And that prophet came back and said, 15 years of additional life have been given to you. The prophet who had given that message to his father was killed by Manasseh. It was the prophet Isaiah. Do you know how Isaiah killed him? He put him, stuffed him into an empty uh, tree and sawed that tree in half with him inside. That's what he did to that prophet Isaiah. Beautiful book that the prophet Isaiah wrote. And the Bible says in verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Did you get that? He did much more. There was not enough room to write everything he did. Of all the things that we've described here this morning, he did much more. What a terrible, terrible man. What would you do to this man if he was under your judgment? What do you think God should do with the worst man in the Bible? In 1969, a Jewish man by the name of Simon Weisenthal penned a very thought-provoking book called The Sunflower. And in the book The Sunflower, he captured the agony that he had personally experienced during the Holocaust. But there was one experience there that I want to share with you that he wrote about. He writes that when he had been freed from one of the Nazi death camps, he was taken to a U.S. Army, a U.S. Army medical camp. But inside this medical camp, they were treating two people. They were treating the Jews who had been rescued from these Nazi death camps, and they were also treating the Nazi soldiers who had been wounded and captured in the same hospital. And and he tells a story that a nurse came to him and told him that there was a Nazi soldier who was near death who had requested to speak to a Jew before he died. And so Simon Weisenthal, not knowing or expecting what was going to happen, walked into that room of the Nazi soldier 
and he was brought face to face with that wounded and bandaged man. The man struggled to speak with him as he was near death, but Weisenthal nervously and anxiously heard what he said. The Nazi soldier described how he had killed many Jews, how he had set villages of Jews on fire, and he had killed women and children and adults. Weisenthal himself had lost 89 members to the Nazis of his own family. With great anxiety, the Nazi soldier said that he couldn't go to sleep because of the screams of those Jews were still going through his head. And here, on his deathbed, he wanted to talk to a Jew because he wanted to receive forgiveness. And here was Simon Weisenthal, straight out of a Nazi concentration camp, from seeing death and destructions at, at the hand of men like him, standing before him, the man begging, please forgive me. Simon Weisenthal didn't say anything. He turned around and he quickly left the room as a Nazi screamed for forgiveness. Many years later, Simon Weisenthal wasn't at peace. He didn't know if he had done the right or the wrong thing. He decided to write to many people. He wrote to 32 men and women, scholars, Nobel laureates, psychologists, religious leaders, and he asked them if he had done the right thing by not forgiving and leaving. The results were that 26 out of the 32 affirmed his choice to not offer forgiveness. Six speculated on the costly but superior road of pardon and mercy. And Simon didn't know if he had done the right or wrong thing. What would you have done? What would you have done? The Bible tells us what happened to Manasseh in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, and verse 9. Go over two books to your right. You find 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, and verse 9, page 438. 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, and verse 9. When you're, it's page 439, sorry, 439 in your pew Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9. What happened to the worst man in the Bible? 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9 says this. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks. These hooks are the hooks that uh, hooking your nose. And bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. And you're like, Amen, God. Oof, God came through. You know, God has patience. But there's a limit, right? God has mercy, but there's a limit, right? And so the, we think that the last thing we see is Manasseh being carried off with hooks in his, in his nose off to Babylon. And if you're getting carried off to Babylon, it's not for a vacation. It's for your public execution in front of everyone there. Manasseh finally got his, what he deserved. He got justice, right? But I remember reading a little verse in the Bible in the, in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Do you know it? If we confess our sins, He is. But only for the good people, right? I mean, it's only for the little sins, right? It's only for us Christian people sins, right? If that promise is true, it is true for the most evil person. If that promise is true, then God's mercy is not only surface level, it is deeper than we can imagine. 
Because the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 12, now when he was in affliction, Manasseh, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And I say, how dare you, Manasseh? How could you even pray to God? You have no rights. Because my, my mercy, or my picture of mercy was only superficial level. But listen to verse 13. And pray to him. And he received, no God, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was what? That was God. He forgave him. God forgave the worst man in the Bible. All the things that I've described was to paint a picture that this man is the most terrible person you've ever heard of, the most terrible person you've experienced in the Bible. He did so much against God. In fact, he did so much evil, he led the nation of Israel to go to a path that led them to be spread around the world in Jerusalem to be destroyed. It was all his fault. And yet, God's mercies are so deep. God's mercies are so deep that they can cover the worst man in the Bible. Why do I share this with you? It's not because I think you're the worst people in Michigan. I share this with you because of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. We've been talking how we are the children of God, and He is our Father. And if we are children, we should act like the, the Father. In Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer says this, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and catch verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The command to forgive is sometimes haunting. Sometimes it's tiring to forgive. Sometimes it's overwhelming to forgive. Sometimes we should rightfully feel angered by injustice, and the ass to forgive is a massive and costly request. I see in the story of the prodigal son, right? When we see the story of the prodigal son, we all say, oh, praise God for his mercy. I'm the prodigal son, right? But it's really the story of the, of the two sons. And when we're receiving mercy, when we're receiving pardon, and we say, I'm the prodigal son, it's all good. But when God is forgiving and asking us to forgive someone who has done so much evil and so much bad, who has talked bad about you, who has mistreated you, who made you cry and hurt, then God's grace is jarring. It's disruptive. It's lavish, but, but almost wastefully lavish. It's like, God, too much grace, too much mercy. Hold it back. For, the, you know, for me, it was okay, but I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that bad. But not only does God show us that his grace and mercy is deeper than we could imagine even to cover Manasseh, but then he says to us to follow his example. Because simply to conclude, the main point of the message is this. Forgiven people forgive. Did you catch that? Forgiven people forgive. And if you want to understand forgiveness, check out the story of God and Manasseh. If you think you have the worst person in your life, and you're asking God to take care of them with the Babylonians, give them a chance to repent. And when they repent, 
forgive them. Because forgiven people, what? Forgive. Harry Orchard was known as the, the dynamite killer. Have you heard the story of Harry Orchard? The dynamite killer? Back in the days when labor unions would hire mobsters and, and killers to take care of people they didn't like, this man was hired by the unions to kill a former governor by the name of Frank Stunenberg of Idaho. The story goes that Frank was playing cards at a, at a hotel and, and Harry Orchard, the killer, was watching him and when he saw that the game had ended and he knew he would go back home, Harry Orchard ran to his home with a dynamite and put it on the door so that when the governor would open it, it would just blow up. And sure enough, when he came home and opened his gates, the dynamite set off and there was the former governor laying on the floor, bleeding to death. His wife and children were home. They heard the explosion, ran out, and they saw their father die. They caught Harry Orchard. They sentenced him to prison for the rest of his life. And then something interesting happened. He started to receive letters from the governor's wife. Letter after letter after letter giving him forgiveness. One day, a package came from the wife of the former governor. He was scared to open it because he thought, maybe it's a bomb. <laughs> maybe she's going to get her revenge on me. But he remembered her letters, and he finally had the courage to open it. And it was a package containing books one of the books was called Steps to, to Christ. Some of the first chapters talk about repentance and forgiveness. He read that book. God entered into his heart. And that killer was able to meet the wife of his victim and become loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God's mercy, which is deep and vast, went through that woman to that man. Because forgiven people will forgive. Not when it's easy, but when it's hard. Not when they deserve it, but when they don't deserve it. Because we didn't deserve it. Because God gave it freely to us. What kind of church will we be if we're known as a people who are also insulted like others are insulted, who are also talked bad about like others are talked about. Maybe people have done things to us, mistreated us, but how will the world look at us if they see us and say, but they did something different. They forgave. Why not begin here? Forgive a brother and sister in church. Why not begin here? Forgive a husband or a wife. Why not begin here? Forgive a parent, a sibling. Why not begin here by first receiving the forgiveness of Jesus in your own hearts? Because if God could forgive the worst man in the Bible, he can forgive you and those who have done you wrong. If you've been forgiven, the appeal today is go and forgive. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story of Manasseh. What a powerful testimony that we think we know your mercy, we think we know your love, we, know, we think we know how deep it is, but you show us, Lord, that it's even deeper and greater than we can imagine. Help us to follow your example as forgiven people and go forgive that one person that comes to our mind right now at this very moment. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.